Well, it's a veritable Wild West on Capitol Hill these days, as Republican efforts to repeal, replace, skinny repeal, and why not skinny replace the Affordable Care Act have all come and gone. What's next on the board may be anyone's guess, but on today's program, we'll look at how we've gotten to this point and whether there's a clear path moving forward. This is ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Joining the program to help talk me off the ledge from this topsy-turvy healthcare policy landscape is Matthew Fiedler, fellow with the Center for Health Policy at the Brookings Institution's Economic Studies Program. Prior to joining Brookings, Fiedler served as chief economist of the Council of Economic Advisors, where he oversaw the Council's work on health care policy, including the ACA's health insurance reforms, Medicaid expansion, and provider payment reform efforts. Mr. Fiedler, welcome to the program. Thanks very much for having me. It's great to have you with us. So I honestly don't even know where to start, and I'm not sure anyone in legislation does right now either, but why don't we quickly run through the key milestones of this roller coaster ride to date and how we got to where we are now? So debate obviously started right after the election. I think I always find it interesting to look back that the initial Republican plan coming right off the election was that they were going to pass a so-called sort of repeal and delay bill where they would repeal the major components of the Affordable Care Act, Medicaid expansion, the tax credits, the individual and employer mandates, but with a two-year delay that would allow them to come up with a replacement. And they expected that they were going to pass that legislation by February or March. And here we are in August, so things obviously haven't turned out that way. So, you know, after that plan failed, the House put together an approach that would have in many ways done some very similar things in terms of reducing financial assistance to people who purchase coverage on the individual market, phasing out federal support for Medicaid expansion over time, and repealing the individual and employer mandates. You know, after a false start in the House, that ultimately passed the House later in the spring, and then the Senate was going to take up fairly similar legislation, ultimately was not able to get the 50 votes it needed for that legislation last week, went down to a narrower bill, the so-called skinny repeal bill that would have repealed the individual and employer mandates and made certain other changes, could not get 50 votes for that either. And so, at least for the time being, I think given how many stops and starts there have been during this process, that caveat's important. But at least for the time being, it looks like legislation that would repeal major components of the Affordable Care Act is off the table. Now, when you mentioned starts and stops, and there were multiple, everyone can attest to that, that brings to mind for many people the idea that there must have been a lot of missteps. So my question to you is, were there a lot of missteps, or was this inevitably going to become a start-and-stop, push-pull situation when it came down to this many people involved, these many stakeholders, with their respective constituents having different demands? I think there are certainly things that Republicans could have done better in the course of this process. I think they started off, as I mentioned, with this repeal and delay plan that I think cost them a couple months of getting towards a proposal that would be more viable. All that said, I think when you are talking about legislation that is ultimately going to result in 10 or 20 million people, fewer people with insurance coverage, I think it's going to be complicated and I think it's going to be unpopular almost no matter which way you slice it. Honestly, in some ways, given that towards the end of this debate, the legislation was polling at 10 or 20 or maybe 30 percent approval in some ways, it's surprising that it was as close to getting through the Senate as it was. So we had a desire to repeal something that, I guess for lack of another way to think of it, might have in some ways been doomed from the start just because 
every projection indicated that there was going to be a big, big fallout in insurance coverage. Is that right? I think the direct effects on insurance coverage were important, but I think it was also important that people, the people who would be affected by those changes in insurance coverage or people who cared a lot about those changes in insurance coverage made their voices heard through the course of this process. So we saw both senators and members of the House hearing from these people at town hall meetings, hearing from them by phone, hearing from them by email, and seeing ads run in their district, seeing critical editorials and news stories run on their hometown papers. And I think the combination of those direct effects and then the actions that that catalyzed had a very important effect on, on how they thought about these questions. And that concept of hearing from them, that's one that I want to come back to, because the issue of transparency or the lack thereof seemed to be a big sticking point for some of the senators, Senator McCain, of course, casting the deciding no vote. Mm-hmm. What was your take on that criticism? Was that a well-justified criticism? Was transparency a real issue here? I think it was. The legislative process is never as pretty as, as people might like. There are often last-minute agreements and last-minute changes that are made to legislation before it's voted on. So, you know, I don't think we should sort of idealize the legislative process of your But this legislation, particularly the process in the Senate, was quite unusual in that there were literally no hearings in the Senate. The text of the legislation was being negotiated purely at the level of the Senate leadership behind closed doors with many members, even of the Republican caucus, not aware of what was going to end up in the bill. And then when we saw the Senate uh, proceed to the legislation at the end of July, it was without an understanding on the part of Republican members on what the final bill would actually be. So I think this was an unusual process, and it had real costs because it meant that They were unable, even within the Republican caucus, to build a sort of broad coalition of support. Now, the flip side is that I think Senator McConnell pursued that strategy because he felt that giving opposition the time to organize and to mobilize would be very, very dangerous to the legislation. So in some ways, I think that strategy is reflective of the public opposition we talked about a little bit earlier, that in some ways it may have been the best of bad options. And I'm interested in the role of the White House during these various stages, whether it was strategically taking an arm's length stance, if that was contributory in some way, helpful or harmful to the process. So I think when we think about the role of the White House, we want to distinguish two things. I think one is the White House's public stance, which I think was generally unhelpful in that there was not a lot of message discipline. President Trump, through his tweets, was on various occasions, was initially supportive of the sort of repeal and delay approach and then wasn't and then was again and was generally taking a somewhat sort of inflammatory approach to trying to get various Republican senators on board that I think backfired in various respects. I think behind the scenes, below the presidential level, the White House may have actually been more helpful, in particular after the first round where the legislation died in the House. It does seem that Vice President Pence was instrumental in brokering the deal that brought the House Conservative Freedom Caucus on board. And so while I have serious policy objections to the deal that was brokered there, if your objective was for this legislation to pass, I think on that, some of those nuts and bolts behind the scenes efforts, at least in that instance, I think the White House was reasonably effective. Well, for those who are just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. 
My guest is Matthew Fiedler, fellow with the Center for Health Policy at the Brookings Institution. So, Mr. Fiedler, I want to come back to the objections that you had. Tell me a little bit more about the, the objections that you uh, personally and perhaps on behalf of your institution had when it came to some of these policies that were being introduced. Just to clarify one thing up front, Brookings doesn't take institutional positions. So these are sort of my views as a policy analyst and as a citizen on some level. But my most significant concerns were well encapsulated by the effects on insurance coverage that have gotten significant attention. That as a consequence of the changes in Medicaid and the reductions in financial assistance for lower-income people, there were going to be large reductions in insurance coverage, particularly at lower-income levels. We have good evidence that when people don't have insurance coverage, they have more trouble accessing care, and they're significantly less financially secure. So that reduction in insurance coverage was of significant concern from my perspective. There are also systemic consequences. We know that when people are uninsured, a significant fraction still gets sick in some instances, and a significant fraction of the cost of their care then falls on third parties, whether they be hospitals or government or other actors in the healthcare system. That's a fairly inefficient way of financing that care. So even beyond the effects on the individuals themselves, I think there are real reasons to be concerned about reductions in insurance coverage. And certainly given the work that you're doing, we mentioned earlier, you've really moved in on health insurance reforms. You've talked about Medicaid, uh, Mm -hmm. Medicaid expansion, provider payment reform efforts there. What about the work that you're currently doing is cutting right into the issues that are currently being experienced on Capitol Hill with respect to trying to create new recommendations to help guide a a pathway that would be more effective moving forward? Some of the work I'm doing right now is focused on just understanding what's happening in the individual health insurance market. And I think one of the things we have seen, obviously, we saw very significant increases in premiums in the individual market last year. And what we're starting to get is evidence that those rate increases, while painful, were probably roughly sufficient to get insurers back to a sustainable pricing level so that they can break even or make a small profit in this market going forward. I think there was a concern that increases in premiums would cause large reductions in enrollment, particularly among healthy people, and that the market would enter what's sometimes referred to as a death spiral. The evidence we have now is pretty clearly indicating that that didn't happen, and what we had was a one-time correction. I think that fact is a very important piece of context for thinking about policy going forward, namely that we we don't need radical changes. What we do need is a stable policy environment so that the, the progress we've made over the last few years, we can sort of realize the fruits of that progress in the years to come. That's a really good point that you raised, that anger, um, I'm going to call it palpable anger that a lot of people felt around the premiums increase, is in large part what fueled much of the repeal efforts and, and the popularity around it initially. But it was really fascinating to watch that turn in public sentiment around becoming more aware of the loss of insurance for massive populations of people and how that turned some of the sentiment around towards wanting to maintain elements of the ACA, perhaps uh, changing or refining it, which, as far as I understood, a lot of the Democrat caucus was interested in potentially talking about. Whether that's true or not, I can't can't say. You probably have a better perspective. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit about that sentiment change, because the anger is still there. People are looking at high premiums and saying, well, this doesn't work for me at business levels, at individual levals. But that equal and perhaps opposite anger around seeing 
26 plus million people lose their coverage um, is also quite palpable. And how do we find some sort of middle ground there? There is no doubt that there are real things we can do to make both the health insurance system and the health care system more broadly work better, and particularly for you know the people who are in the individual market and you know not eligible for subsidies. So when those premiums increase, they're they're facing the full freight. I think in the near term, there does seem to now be an effort, bipartisan effort on Capitol Hill to move towards a package that would create some near-term stability in the individual market. So there's been a lot of discussion around these cost-sharing reduction reimbursements that the federal government makes to insurers in exchange for insurers providing lower cost-sharing to some of their low- and moderate-income enrollees. The Trump administration has suggested that they would cut off those payments, and there does seem to be bipartisan agreement that those payments should continue. So I think we'll see legislation to continue those payments going forward, which will allow insurers to charge markedly lower premiums than they would if those premiums were stopped and probably maintain current levels of choice and participation in the individual market. I think there are also some other sort of near-term things one could do to stabilize the market. I think over the longer term, this is probably not realistic for a near-term bipartisan package, but I think we should be thinking about whether the subsidies that were provided to people who buy individual market coverage in the ACA were too small and that those should be expanded in the future. Another item that would be an important step forward, and there actually is some prospect for near-term progress on, is expanding Medicaid in more states. So the Affordable Care Act allowed states to expand Medicaid to all people with incomes below 138% of the poverty line. 31 states in D.C. have done that, but 19 states have not. There does seem to be a number of states who are interested in moving forward. Maine has a ballot referendum on Medicaid expansion this fall. Kansas came within one vote of overriding a gubernatorial veto of Medicaid expansion and governors in North Carolina, Tennessee, and Wyoming, among others, have expressed recent interest in expanding. So I do think there's some potential for progress in expanding coverage further there. And to come back to the current state of affairs on Capitol Hill now, what with Republican-led repeal and replace objectives, both in the current form and future forms, are those dead and buried? Or do you think something else will be coming around the bend again in the near future? So I think in terms of legislation repealing major parts of the ACA, I think that it's probably dead for now. There are a few senators who are still trying to find a path to a package that could secure 50 Republican votes in the Senate. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina and Bill Cassidy of of Louisiana are working on such a package. I think they will ultimately be unsuccessful just because the three Republican no votes have been fairly clear that they are not interested in a partisan package. And in truth, I think there are several Republican senators beyond that who would say the same thing in private. All that said, the Senate map in 2018 is very favorable to Republicans, and I think it is entirely plausible that they will pick up seats in the 2018 elections. And I don't think it's by any means out of the question that after the elections, there could be another effort to repeal major components of the ACA. Well, my last question to you, Mr. Fielder, on this topic is an open-ended one. You've given us a sense of what some of the near-term and, it sounds like, a little bit further out directions may be. But maybe just talk us through a little bit where you think we're headed and if your expectations are high or low, and you can find that however you like at this point. (laughs) In the near term, 
there will be a bipartisan effort in the Senate to pass a narrow bill that removes some of the uncertainties that have been created about the future of the individual insurance market, particularly around these cost-sharing reduction reimbursements. Uh, I think that will be positive, and I think that will help create an environment where the individual market really does stabilize over the next couple of years. I think beyond that, it's more challenging. There is agreement on some of these narrower steps for a near-term, or at least I think there could be agreement around some of these narrower steps for a near-term stabilization package. I think beyond that, many of the steps that I would think would improve the individual market, which probably looks like larger subsidies and potentially the introduction of a public option in the exchanges, are unlikely to attract bipartisan approval, bipartisan agreement. And so I think we may be in for a decent amount of gridlock or renewed Republican attempts at Republican-only policies again after the 2018 election. Well, I'll keep my fingers crossed for <laughs> whatever may happen, that it will be something that leads to good health outcomes for the patients uh, that our audience is tending to right now. Indeed. And with that, I want to thank my guest, Matthew Fiedler, for joining me today to talk about the state of health care reform in the U.S. Matthew, it was great having you on the program. Thanks very much for having me. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. To access this episode and others about healthcare policy, visit ReachMD.com, where you can be part of the knowledge. Thanks for listening.